This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Just want to take a couple minutes though, because there was a great topic that Bill Kelly had on his show yesterday, I believe. I think it was yesterday morning. And I, I listened and I read the story that preceded it, that led to it. And I was kind of interested in how this this story came to be. The The story is, here's the headline, conservatives and Quebecers most biased poll finds. And it was a study that was done that says, um, here's the, well, here's the, uh, the, the lead of the story. A majority of conservative voters and people from Quebec, almost six in 10, have, quote, unfavorable feelings for at least one religious or ethnic minority group, according to a new poll. The telephone, telephone survey by Forum Research found overall 41% of Canadians feel unfavorable about at least one of the following groups, Muslims, First Nations, South Asians, Asians, Jews, and black people. It was an interesting poll that was done. And it was certainly uh, something that got a lot of attention and certainly spurred a lot of tisk tisking and a lot of people saying, well, yes, of course, come on, we, we knew this. The, those, are, those people have problems with racism or whatever else. And I, listen, and I read this very closely and I read it a few times. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to argue that um, that there is not racism. Of course there's racism. There's sexism. There's all kinds of things. There's all kinds of isms in our society. We've talked about this before. So I'm not going to argue that we don't have people who hold positions that are unfavorable, as the word in this study was using, towards people groups. I'm not going to argue that there is not racism that exists in our society. I'm not going to argue that there are not people who look down on women or think of them as second-class citizens or anything else. We know those people exist. But this, to me, as I read this, on top of the people groups that were discussed in this, it made me wonder whether this was a complete study. Because, of course, it leads to a headline and a position that, well, you know what? Conservatives and people from Quebec are the ones who hate. They're the ones who really are not the the kind people, the open-minded people. And, And as I say, maybe that's true. But as I was looking through this, you know what I, I start, it started to dawn on me. Is this, how different would this poll have been? Or what different answer would we have been? if we had asked the question completely. Here's what I mean. Seems that we've asked the question of a number of identified groups here, which leads to answers of hatred, answers of racism, but leaves out racism or at least hatred of a certain group that doesn't get answered. And I'm I'm being obtuse. Let me just get right to it. What if you had said, what if we had listed all different people groups and said, do you have unfavorable feelings towards them? Would it have identified only conservatives or Quebecers who were the ones who were going to be looking bad out of this? If you had asked across this country, do you have, if you included in this list, do you have unfavorable feelings towards people in the south of the United States? What do you think the answer is? Do you think that all the urbanites in this country would have said, no, I feel great about the people from Arkansas and Tennessee and those who voted in the last U.S. election? See where I'm going with this? A lot of people up here 
have a lot of negative feelings. And so we say, well, wait a second, that's, that's just negative feelings. That's, that's, it's not racism. Well, the point is, it's pretty difficult when you look around. We've created a study, or someone's created a study, Forum Research has created a study that allows a lot of us to feel very superior because we're very open-minded and we love everybody and we're very welcoming and we don't dislike a soul until you actually broaden it past the groups that we talk about all the time as identifiable groups that we may dislike and you throw in other people groups and we realize, come on, you dislike them. Lots of people dislike them. Maybe not you, but the general, the wide open you. What if this question had been asked Rather than limiting it to these people groups, if you had said, do you hold, again, keep in mind the word was unfavorable feelings. What are your feelings towards social conservatives? How do you think that Toronto or Vancouver or Ottawa or Montreal would have done in that particular poll? Do you think that all of them would have said, oh yes, no, 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 I fully endorse their their right and their position, to, their their chance, their opportunity to hold feelings that are very different from mine socially. Do you think that that would have been the case? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that suddenly the survey would have been urban Canadians or Ontario holds negative feeling, holds that they're biased, they're racist, if you want to call it that even. What if we had said, here's another one. What if the question had been, what are your feelings towards rich people? How do, you, how do you think Canada would have done? Do you think that the number would have come out that a vast majority of Canadians were totally in love with the idea of rich people and thought that rich people, that they had no unfavorable feelings towards rich people? The, the point I'm getting at is it's very easy. It's very easy in our society to A, ask questions that will lead to predictable answers, I think, and B, that will ask questions and come up with a study that will allow us to feel superior and open-minded and like the good guy. Like, we don't dislike anybody. I'm so open-minded. Anybody, I'm, I'm good with anybody. Ask the questions, and whether it's about race or sex or gender, but ask about political philosophy. Ask about position. Ask about insight. Ask about people's mind and what they believe. You will find that we have a society that, especially on both sides, is not nearly as open-minded as we like to think. I've said this many, many times, that we need to be exceedingly careful when we throw around terms like racist or sexist, anything, any kind of ist, we got to be very careful when we start throwing those words around because they are loaded, loaded words. And what they do is sometimes they are legitimate. Again, let me go back to that. There are times absolutely when it's legitimate. But holding an, uh, the quote-unquote unfavorable position doesn't necessarily, by definition, mean that someone is racist. I bet you that today, this morning, this evening, anytime during the day today, in Germany there is an unfavorable feeling towards Muslims. You heard what happened in the market there yesterday. I'm betting you that there is an unfavorable, if you were to do this poll, the the poll would come out as there is a large unfavorable feeling towards, now, does this mean all Muslims? No. Does this mean that everybody in Germany is racist? No. These things are very, these, these polls are very, very 
headline grabbing, but they don't necessarily say all that much. But yet we jump on them and it de- and we determine that this means that people, especially in the West of Canada, oh, come on, the people in the West and the people in Quebec, they are, look at the racism. They, they hold unfavorable feelings towards people, but we haven't asked about every person. We haven't asked about every people group, which allows a lot of us to feel good about ourselves because we're not one of those people that dislikes someone, that holds unfavorable feelings towards someone, that hates someone. And yet I got to tell you, as I have listened to conversations over the past month or so since Donald Trump was elected, I have heard more hatred and more bile directed at the people who voted for Donald Trump than I've ever heard anyone talk about Muslims or Jews or black people or anyone else. Let's be honest. We've heard more hateful stuff, whether you agree or disagree, we've heard more people making fun, mocking, belittling people who would have voted for Donald Trump than you would have heard for any other group. And I'm not arguing that you should have voted for Donald Trump or that you have to agree with them, but the reality is it's pretty difficult for us to say how open-minded we are and how we don't hate anybody and how we have equal opinions of everybody. We love everybody when out of your own mouth comes these comments day after day after day. Broaden this thing and say, not just all these particular groups, but geographical regions. What do you think about people from Alberta? There's a lot of people in Ontario that don't, Hold, don't give a lot of respect or think very highly of folks from out West and vice versa. Let's be honest, vice versa. Ontario is seen as, as the devil you know, across a lot of Canada. But we, these surveys, I'm sorry, the, I, I read these surveys and they make for great talking points. They make for great stories. They make for great headlines. And they suggest that we have a country that is laden with racism, that is just loaded with racist people. And I don't know, I don't, first of all, I don't believe that, but I don't know that that's true. Even when you look at a study like this, what does an unfavorable position actually even mean? Explain to me, what does, if I hold an, if someone holds an unfavorable feeling to a particular group, does that automatically mean you're racist? What if that, what if, maybe it does. Maybe that's, maybe that's how the question was posed. But on the flip side, I can hold unfavorable feelings towards my neighbors. What if my neighbor happens to be from a minority group, but it's got nothing to do with their minority group. It's got something to do with the fact that we don't get along. I do in fact, get along with my neighbors. Thankfully got great neighbors. But what if you didn't? And the question was, well, do you have unfavorable or favorable feelings towards your neighbors? Does that mean that we generally as a society hate our neighbors? I don't think so. I've, as I say, I just read through this thing. I read the story over and over and over again. And I thought it allows us, all this is doing is allowing us to hold, to believe that we are somehow the superior folks, because we don't hate anybody. We don't dislike anybody. We are so open-minded. We are so kind and compassionate. It's those other people that are filled with hatred. But if you just broaden the, the scope of the question a little bit, you will realize we've got just as many people, all of us have just as many people that we don't like it, just that it may not be an ethnic minority group. It may be someone else, 
But I, there are very few people that would be able to honestly put their hand on a Bible and strap themselves to a lie detector machine and honestly say, oh, yeah, there, I, I, I truly, I've, I'm good with everybody. There's nobody that I have unfavorable feelings towards. And again, let me go back to that idea of what happened in the States. There are so many people that I've heard from that have made fun, that have mocked, that have belittled the people who would have voted would have voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton because they're hillbillies, they're racist. It's That's no different. That's no different from this. They hold a different point of view. They come from a different socioeconomic background. And as a result, I hold an unfavorable position on them for of them it's no different so we can feel great about this and i again i mean it's 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 a great headline it's a great study to get people talking vera writes in many people who would be outraged to hear anyone say something negative about blacks jews muslims gays handicapped etc will very comfortably say or at least tolerate slurs and negative comments about catholics or christians why is that that's exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about. So if you're one of the people who looks at this study, who heard about this study, and said, "Yeah, those people, those those Quebecers, those conservatives, those people," yeah, I, I you know I, I predicted that they were the ones who were going to be the most whatever. Look in the mirror first, everybody, because we all do it. We all do it. Maybe not about the groups that are asked about in this question, but we all do it. And so the question isn't then, how do we fix them, as in the conservatives or the Quebecers or the other people who, according to this study, had unfavorable opinions on certain groups. The question shouldn't be, how do we fix them? Look at yourself and say, who do I really dislike? Who do I put down? Who do I have an unfavorable opinion of? The question is, how do we fix ourselves? so that we don't have this. If we're going to be pointing fingers, we have to be pointing all of our fingers, and that means some of them are pointing back at us. Because I just, I read these things and I've read some online comments about this, and the overwhelming sense is them. It's them. It's about them. We don't see that maybe we got a bit of an issue ourselves. Maybe not with African-American people. Maybe not with Muslim people. Maybe not with Jewish people. But I guarantee you, or I'm, very close to guaranteeing, for many of you anyway, for many of us, there will be some people, group, some group identified either by political or religion or whatever else that we have a problem with, if you're willing to admit it, which most people apparently aren't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Last week when Alan Thicke died, there seemed to be a... Great deal of sadness around the death of, of this actor and singer and icon. And to some degree, you know, 2016 has been a brutal, as we talked about last night, has been a brutal year for people dying. It's been awful for celebrities. But this, considering Alan Thicke's place in the pantheon of celebrities, this seemed like it was a little more, frankly, than expected. And I know he was a great Canadian, and I know he was a friend of Wayne Gretzky, and all that stuff. I know all the all that stuff, but there just seemed to be something more to this, and I couldn't quite figure it out. And it's only a theory, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but it suddenly struck me. I wonder if it suddenly started to wonder if it had anything to do with the fact that he played 
Dr. Seaver on growing pains. Now, of course, you're saying, yes, of course, that had something to do with it. That's how we knew him. Well, what I mean is that he played on TV a father who was caring, who was dedicated to his family, who was successful, who was bright, who who essentially wasn't a buffoon. And really, one of the last fathers seemingly on TV that filled that role. There's not many of those anymore on TV. So I started wondering, is this a guy that we are fondly remembering for that kind of thing, a time that is now gone on television? And then it got me thinking, okay, what's actually happened to fathers on television? When did things change? Because once upon a time, we had him, Alan Thicke, and we had Bill Cosby, which, you know, at the time was one of those TV dads and Ward Cleaver. And now you look at what's on TV and you look at who are the folks who are being fathers and what fathers represent on TV. And we have Phil Dunphy, nice guy, but an idiot. So I thought we would bring in Dr. Amanda Lott. She's a professor in the Department of Communication Studies and Screen Arts and Cultures at the University of Michigan and also a fellow at the Peabody Media Center. She is also the author of Cable Guys, Television and American Masculinities. Dr. Lott, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you. So when I started thinking about this, am I completely over-reading this and making something here that doesn't exist, or has there in fact been a way that television has portrayed fathers over the last few decades? Well, it's, it's, it's a bigger phenomenon than even that. If we look back historically, it, the, the nature of the father has shifted just about every decade over time. Starting in the, the 50s, as you noted, with the Leave it to Beaver, the father knows best, what we might call the omniscient father um, and then that gave way in the 1970s to sort of more silly fathers, think bewitched. Uh, and in that way, then in the 1980s, with Family Ties, The Cosby Show, and as you know, Growing Pains, we, we had a return to that steady, stable father. And sure enough, then in the 90s, uh, things pivoted yet again. And so I think perhaps what you're noticing is that we haven't had that same kind of return back to the kind of family structure and the kind of fatherly role that had we'd seen over time since the 1980s and early 90s. Why did that happen? Two questions. Why did that happen, do you think, and why have we not pivoted back to that as we seem to have in the past? I think a lot of it has to do with how much television has changed, and it, it, that change really took place in that period. So beginning in the 1990s was the moment that Cable began producing original series in the U.S., and really we saw the audience in the U.S. uh, spread out. And actually it wasn't only cable. It was in the mid to late 80s that Fox launched, and then the additional broadcast channels, uh, the WB and UPN, which then gave way to the CW. And so what the effect of all those, those channels were was that many of them targeted more specific demographic groups. So Fox, for example, targeted a young audience. I mean, if you want to look for that more steady father, perhaps the place that you might see him uh, was in the Walsh family in the original Beverly Hills 90210. That okay, yeah, yeah. And so I think the, the lack of those family sitcoms has to do with how television has changed to target more specific groups and the way in which shows that had that mass audience sensibility have fallen out of favor. So is television driving 
this in a sense, or is it simply reflecting the fact that the nuclear family is not what it used to be, and so it's trying to just reflect that? I'm not sure that it, it has to do with the nuclear family as much as it has to do with what audiences seem to be gravitating toward. And so the and and it also has to do with some of the transitions and what audiences are being targeted. And so I think we do we still do see fathers on television. Um, they're certainly very different. And I think the other thing that plays out here in between growing pains in the present is is a generational transition. Uh, growing pains is sort of the that's the last generation of those boomer parents. And uh, we're now seeing, what is or often described as Generation X in those parent roles. And so there, too, it's not surprising to be seeing different behaviors, different kinds of families. I think a lot of that has to do with Generation X being a group that came of age after the women's movement. And it's, it's not, I don't know that it has to do with the nuclear family so much as just the idea that male and female roles are, are far more companionate rather than that kind of father-knows-best style. Well, I, and I read something today before I was going to talk to you that uh, made the argument that, you know what, just having that good father, that Ward Cleaver type who, as you say, the omniscient or omnipotent, whatever father, that he's always right and he knows what's going on, that doesn't necessarily make for good TV because especially if it's a comedy, you need to have someone who is going to be the, the joke. You're going to need someone who's going to be the, the comic juice kind of in the show that drives it. And so the father's there to do that. Sure, and in Growing Pains, that was the ki- the role of the, the kids for the most part. And so it's, you often see that transition back and forth in terms of who's playing that role. And, and Growing Pains was a show that dealt with various issues, but sort of in that prototypic, very special episode-type style. And I think that looking back in comparison with some of the, the TV on today, it, it it's reassuring, but it also seems fairly saccharine compared to the the roles of, of fathers um, that often that I'm thinking of Louis, which we wouldn't think of as a family sitcom, but Louis C.K.'s character uh, in his comedy Louis, a core piece of his character is it's about him being a father and him struggling to be a father and a single father or a divorced father, and and those stories that he tells often resonate in a very different way than the pat uh, sitcom stories that are going to resolve nicely for us in 30 minutes. I may be walking down a dangerous path here for the next couple minutes, but um, I don't see too many shows that have the mother as the buffoon. Maybe they're out there. I don't recall them. So how has it become that the, the dad is always the one as opposed to the idiot mother? Well, I think we had those sort of scatterbrain characters in the 50s with uh, Lucille Ball and uh, Gracie Allen. I'd say to a degree, if we looked at something like Malcolm in, a, in the Middle, uh, the, the mother character there as well. Uh, and then Married with Children. I think in, in, in a lot of cases you have, um, when, when we're over the top, both of the parents are, are sort of over the top. But I think that also has to do with this history of women's representation and the fact that they were only seen in roles as wives and mothers for much of television history. And, and as a result of that narrow stereotype, stereotyping for a good 40 years, that at this point, uh, television executives and writers are recognized that, uh, they, that those representations are going to be watched much more closely and for 
sort of what they seem to say about women. And the reality is that there have always been so many different roles for men on television, central starring roles, that it's never been the case that any one role is going to impact anyone's belief about who men are, right? So we had uh, Tony Soprano, and, and no one was afraid that that was going to change everybody's ideas about men um, because there were so many representations of men out there. So I think that plays into that dynamic as well. Does this go beyond fathers, though? Is it? Is it? I was trying to think of, of other examples, but... Are we seeing the way men, period, are portrayed on TV differently, or is this largely just a father thing that has changed over the years? Well, in the, the book that you mentioned, uh, in Cable Guys, I, I look at dramas, uh, specifically those that were written for Cable, and much of the argument there is that those shows were telling different stories about men. Um, and that interesting, what was very interesting to me about the, the series was that they the central problematic, whatever it was that was causing the conflict in the show. So thinking about Breaking Bad or uh, there was a HBO show called Hung, uh, the, the men were struggling to get by and they were struggling to try to keep their families together. And if we look back at television history, very rarely did we see men in dramatic roles tending to matters of family at all. Uh, typically, they were central characters in workplace dramas. We saw them as cops. We saw them as doctors and lawyers. But often their home lives got short shrift. And so what was different about these stories that started appearing in the early 2000s was that they did focus on the whole life of male characters, and we saw the ways that they struggled at work, uh, and then we saw the dilemmas that they faced at home. And in many cases, what was really interesting was the way in which they were trying to be different fathers than their fathers had been. Mm. And that that was, that sort of led to this uncertainty that they had about how to be a man in, in modern culture. It's real. you know what, you just raise an interesting point, because what it seems to me is you've got a, a split that's happened here. Nobody's still going down the middle, at least it doesn't seem like it. One is male characters are becoming far more complicated uh, because now, as you say, they've got their family and their life that has to be, and so they become much more detailed and nuanced and, and interesting characters. The other side is they just become dopes, and they be, and so it splits, and you have some that are really now interesting and some that are really pretty basic and not very bright. I think that, again, has to do with the, the struggle in television right now to figure out, for the broadcasters, how to come up with characters and stories that draw big enough audiences to support their sure. advertiser base. Uh, and, and I think that, that might be, if we looked, we could see some of those uh, male characters that you're most critical of. I think they're appearing there mainly in, in, on the broadcast side. We do see this as well, not just with the, the shows, but in commercials as well. We and, and I read somewhere, I don't know if it was you who wrote this or you who was quoted with this, but that many of the commercials, obviously, or, or the ones that are geared towards things that traditionally we would expect women to be buying, you might see the position or the, the, the goofy guy in that. Is that something that resonates with women when they watch a TV show to see an idiot guy or to see a guy who's a bit more of a buffoon? Does that add to female strength or do they look at it and go, that's not really the way my husband is? How, how does it work with commercials with that? Does it, does it resonate with women? I think that in those, the, the, that the commercials can kind of, ca- that can capture those everyday frustrations well. And I think, you know, whether you're male or female, you, you, you have these moments with your spouse where, you know, you, you 
fail to communicate, and there's sort of those, those things that are the central battle in any household. And I think the commercials that find a way to play off of those moments that are, are somewhat universal, uh, I think those succeed. I, I haven't done any research to yeah. see what women actually feel about those commercials, but certainly you can tell when the messaging in the commercial is catering toward a, a female buyer. And it, it's long been the statistic that women make something like 80% of the household purchases. And so consequently, advertising does tend to be targeted at that audience. I guess the big question out of all of this is, does it, does it matter? Do you think that when the different perspectives, the different ways that men, fathers, women on TV, does this change our attitudes, do you believe? Does it have that kind of impact on people watching? I don't think it's something like you see something and then you change your belief and you think that. Uh, But I do think that over time, something like women gradually seeing female characters in roles other than mothers, that's, you know, that's an important thing for a young girl growing up to recognize that, you know, these are other things that are available for you. And likewise, sort of, I think this, in this moment where we're seeing male characters struggling with these questions of, of, you know, I can tell gender roles are changing and I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do. I think when you are able to see those struggles you recognize in your own life playing out through other characters, it can be reassuring and often sort of give you some new insight onto a recognition that, that these are more broadly felt changes. Dr. Amanda Lotz from the University of Michigan. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. It's a uh, it's it's an interesting topic because obviously Dr. Lotz is coming at it from an intellectual, a studious position, studying the idea of men and fathers on TV. I'm coming at it simply from a someone who views television. So you see fathers, and that's why it made me think that when Alan Thicke passed away, that there was something that we looked back, or a lot of people did, rather fondly on that era. Because the TV shows that I watch today, and it's interesting that she brought up some of the dramas as well, because even the dramas, you think of it as the comedies, it's always the idiot father, it's always the goofball father. Mom is holding the family together. The kids, they may be bright, they may not be. But generally, dad is the the punchline. But it's not just with the comedies, as she pointed out. If you watched the series Breaking Bad, Walter White wasn't a punchline. He was a very complicated character. It was a, it was a, a hugely successful show, but he was a guy who was both brilliant and not so brilliant at the same time. Got himself into all kinds of situations. You looked at him and you said, yeah, he's a smart guy. But then at the same time you go, yeah, but he's also chosen interesting, made interesting decisions that, that you would not want to necessarily say, Hey, that's a good idea. It's a really, it's an interesting, Luke, what do you watch today on TV? What, 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 think of what TV fathers on any shows that you watch, are there any shows that you watch where the TV father today is someone that you would say, yeah, that's a really sterling example of what I would want a father to be. Well, so first off, it's probably got to be in comedies, right? Because gen- anything, gen- anything. generally a drama doesn't doesn't have the family uh, dynamic. The dynamic. Uh, you brought up Modern Family already as the uh, the idiot father. All three um, of them, basically all well, all four of them, all four fathers on that show, 
because you got Al Bundy, who was the the father of modern yes. idiot fathers, <laughs> yep. uh, who is now the patriarch of modern family. Well, he's he is at least successful in business. So he's not a, he's not an idiot intellectually, but he is a guy who is you know is a buffoon. And Phil Dunphy is successful enough, but is a buffoon. And the two fathers are both successful but buffoons uh, but at least i would argue all of the parents are buffoons i would argue that the two wives are also, true enough are also buffoons true in enough show. in this so, one you're no you're right you're right but i'm i'm trying i'm really like s- stretching to find that one and i and i can't and part of it is because Go, i mean I, tv just, has gotten away from the family dynamic as the basis for a sitcom but it, you're right it's it's I think it's that the trope for a sitcom requires that you have a buffoon, and so and no it, one will dare make the mother the buffoon, and, that, and that's the reality, and that's fine. Sure, that's fine, but no, because of what Doctor Lot said, we have we have people who are now watching much more closely for what the role of the woman is because of what women have had to overcome to get to where they are, and if you suddenly imagine if you now had the show where it was the very sensible, very bright, very controlling, not controlling, very in control of his surroundings dad and a real idiot wife, mother, who was there, who was, you would get serious, serious blowback. You would get serious blowback. And so, you know what? Why fight? Why deal with problems from the rest of society if we don't have to? Let's just make the dad the guy. But I... Another day we'll talk about it, but you know what? I really believe that it does have an impact on how we perceive fathers, not necessarily men, but the idea that the father is the idiot. I do believe it has some impact on people. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.